Hello, this is a free call from an inmate from the main state prison, Warren. To accept this free call, press zero. To refuse this free call, hang up or press one. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. This is Our Prisons the Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your hosts, Catherine Besteman and Leo Hilton. Today we are talking with musician and podcaster Samuel James and ACLU Policy Council Michael Cabetta about race, rights, incarceration, transforming power, and the legacy of intentional efforts to establish Maine as a white state. I'm Leo Hilton. And I come to this show not only as someone with lived experience in the criminal legal system, but also as a co-instructor with Catherine at Colby College and a restorative justice scholar practitioner of five years. I'm Catherine Besteman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College. For the past year and a half, we have worked together to envision community-based alternatives to our current criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? So if you were with us last week, then you know that your mind was probably blown by both Samuel and Michael and with the revealing of a history that is often denied, predominantly denied in our schools today. So this week, we are going to build off of that history of the intentional establishment of Maine as a white state, of the false protections provided by our constitution and look forward into the issues of incarceration and how that oppressive history plays out today. And we'll start with you, Sam. Let's get to the specific question about prisons. Maine has one of the worst racial disparity rates in the nation, nine to one. From your understanding, what is the relationship between the construction of Maine as a white state and the hyper-incarceration of Black people in Maine, as is true everywhere else? Let me start here. You know, Michael did an incredible job talking about uh, a whole lot of stuff, including Du Bois, a whole lot of stuff that we um, collectively don't know for, for uh, I think, very deliberate reasons. And, and he hinted at there is this general hundred year gap that we have in our understanding collectively of American history, right? Especially black history from 1865 to 1965. We know very, very little about what happened. If, if you are going to engage in a conversation about race in this country, uh, you are very likely to be talking to somebody who knows that uh, the slaves got freed at some time and then Martin Luther King and very little in between. But one of the things that happened in between, uh, a lot of this comes from a man named uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, a president, right? Woodrow Wilson was, to, for my money, bar none, the most racist president uh, we ever had. And I know I'm including Andrew Jackson, I'm including everybody in that because of certain things that happened at, at the time, right? And so Woodrow Wilson is also the chief designer of the city manager form of government. So that traces back to that guy. But he did, he did many, many things to try to uh, erase black people from any form of citizenship. When he was, he was the uh, president of Princeton University, 
He barred black enrollment and he erased records of past black enrollment. When he was uh, the governor of New Jersey, he put in eugenics laws. And one of the first things he did as the president was resegregate the federal government. It had been integrated since the end of the Civil War. And of course, what that does is it erases our history, it erases uh, our potential. But there are some other things that happened in his presidency that, that we don't know about. And so one of them was the rise of something called the American Protective League, um, the APL. The APL was a 250,000-member uh, federally-sponsored vigilante group that went around uh, burning down Black businesses, uh, killing Black people, <laughs> do, doing, you know, a, a core to according to the concepts of like getting citizenship, right? Is that it's like, not only do the, do the laws apply to you, but they are enforced in your favor, right? Many, many times things get passed, bills get passed. Uh, I talk in the podcast and I brought up last episode about the place names battle and how there were many places across the state called Nigger Road, Nigger Hill, Nigger Lake, on and on and on. And in 1977, Gerald Talbot passed a bill to change those names. Well, right now, some of those names still exist. The enforcement, like, you know, happened a little bit. It happened to the point where people stopped looking, right? People stopped examining. Uh, it, st- it, it fell out of, out of the paper. It fell out of view. It fell the way that all that history for that hundred years uh, has, has fallen away. And so if you have, you know, the, I guess the short answer, which maybe it's too late for, is that if you establish many, many of the ways in which uh, black people are were initially designed to be in this country, still exist, and laws have been passed to change that, and they have not been enforced, and that's because of cultural reasons, right? And it, the the law sort of implies this uh, cultural understanding. And how many times have you been talking to somebody in bad faith who says, "Well, it's the law, it's the law, it's the law," and so if you have a culture that says black people should be a certain place doing a certain thing we're going to accept that and we're going to expect it and we're going to do our best to uh, make sure that continues to happen because we've taken it into our own identity and any change of that requires a personal change of your own identity and i don't know if you've ever run into somebody who is required to change their identity but uh people fight that pretty hard and so these systemic problems become problems of an individual's identity and then then that's what happens right people say well i'm not I'm not racist. I didn't own any slaves. Uh, I didn't do any of this. And people will stop being responsible for the situation around them and the change that they can make. And so if you have a state like Maine that is designed very specifically to be a white state, then yeah, very likely you're going to have, right? The largest racial discrepancy, nine to one. I hadn't heard that till just now, Leo. Nine to one. Oh, it's hard. Can I cuss on this? I'm not, I'm not going to cuss on this, but oh my God, nine to one. I'm going to follow up, Sam. So, so we have this nine to one racial disparity in who's incarcerated in our prisons. The other disparity that we have in our prisons is that Black people get much longer sentences than white people do for the same crimes, uh, like much longer sentences for the same crimes. So one of the things I think that ties into what you were just saying is looking at who's in our prisons. There's a, and a story that may be apocryphal that the former dean of the law school went into Maine State Prison, took a look around and said, oh, so here's where you keep your black people. Uh, that story just you know slices me through the heart every time I hear it. So we have this enormous disparity. 
Um, we have a hyper-incarceration of Black people in Maine. And I think tying into what you were saying before, that allows for a particular kind of a narrative that there are so many Black people in prison because they're criminals, right? Because they did something to deserve to get there. And it erases and elides all of this history that you've been talking about. And so I'm wondering, this is an enormous question. I'm going to ask you to dance with it for us. What would it take to decarcerate prioritizing the racism that has already been built into our criminal legal system? What would it take to begin dismantling our criminal legal system in a way that prioritizing attacking that prioritizes attacking first the hyperincarceration of Black people? I asked uh, Michael a really similar question uh, for the podcast. <laughs> and maybe I'll take his answer here. His answer was something to the effect of, you know, to change these things, it takes uh, everybody in every field, right? It takes uh, musicians, it takes lawyers, it takes uh, professors, it takes everybody in their in in their corner uh, to be pushing for uh, the change that is right. Um, you know, the, the electoral college is designed, you know, that's specifically designed to favor uh, the slaveholding states, right? The Senate is balanced specifically to do that. Um, the entire way the government is, is, is built is, is to continue uh, enslavement. We say enslavement is, is gone, but, you know, what are the statistics for the amount of people who are enslaved, Black people, Black men who are enslaved versus Black men who are imprisoned now, right? What are those statistics? Uh, the last time I looked, it was more Black men who are imprisoned now than were enslaved in the 1860s. And so I think things, to me, they haven't changed. They've gotten maybe a little bit more complicated, and we've changed the names of certain things. Um, there's a map that I'll send you. Maybe maybe you're familiar with this. Um, a, a number of years ago, somebody did this study. It's like a satellite map, and it shows different racial populations across the country. And they noticed that all of these, all the black people lived in these very square, angular parts across the country. And it wasn't because uh, our homes were more square or our neighborhoods were more square. It was because the concentration of black people was in prisons and prisons are square. And when you look at that map, it is, it's stunning. So I forget who said it. Maybe it was Ruth Wilson Gilmore. When it comes to looking forward in what needs to change in order for us to be able to realize a better tomorrow, the only thing that needs to change is everything. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, that's it. So on that note, we will take a short break and come right back. This is Our Prisons the Answer for Justice Radio. Today we are talking with Samuel James and Michael Cabetta about racism and racial disparities in our carceral system. Michael, we're going to turn to you next. In the episode before last, City Councilor Tori Pelletier spoke eloquently about how systemic racism and the genocide of indigenous people are the foundational harms on which the U.S. has built. What we've been talking about in this episode, we've talked about in the last episode and the one before that. Um, and yet these things are not considered crimes. 
Leo concluded that discussion by noting the power disparities that perpetuate harm without being designated as crimes, and then turned the summary toward the question of how to move past the acknowledgement of harm and toward repair and reparation, emphasizing Tori's point that good intentions, oh, we feel really bad about what happened in the past, good intentions are not enough. Rather, true justice in the contemporary period requires a wholesale transfer of power, a wholesale transformation of power. Do you agree? I guess the question I'm kind of asking is, do we have the legal tools, the legal foundation in place that we need to build a different country going forward? Or do we need to throw the whole thing out and start all over again, build from the ground up, new legal system, new laws, new constitution? Um, what would it take to have a wholesale transformation of power? in the interest of abolishing systems of oppression and racial hierarchy. What would that look like to you? What is the foundation that we need to make that happen? Um, nothing short of a third American revolution. The first one being the, uh, or a fourth perhaps, the first one being the one that declared the United States a new country and established its constitution. The second one being the one after reconstruction. The third, the civil rights movement to some extent. And then a fourth one, Bishop William Barber has a book, Third Reconstruction, that sets out some of the planks of this transformation. And uh, Leo and Catherine, I don't want to end this podcast without mentioning the article that the two of you co-wrote for The Bollard this month, which describes some of the things that have to be done for that level of transformation. I am the um, proud constituent of the greatest counselor in the Western Hemisphere, Tori Pelletier. And uh, I emphatically agree with everything she said. But I don't think an entirely new legal system is necessary. One of the uh, missteps that civil rights movements have consistently made throughout this country is over-investing in legal and legalistic solutions to uh, political uh, and social problems. It's good to have good laws, but um, good laws are only as good as enforcement. And um, Right now, schools are as segregated, about as segregated as they were when Brown versus Board was decided in 1954. We um, have had um, good decisions from some Supreme Courts. We've had terrible decisions recently from the current Supreme Court, uh, but the underlying legal infrastructure has been more or less the same. For most of American history, we've had um, socialism for whites and um, some version of sadism for everyone else. In uh, the mid 19th century, the United States uh, successfully uh, transferred probably the largest land transfer in the history of the world uh, from indigenous people to uh, recent European migrants to uh, settlers to the United States. And that was over 100 million acres of land transferred to um, the grandparents, great great grandparents of people who are alive today and people who own land today. But it wasn't just a land transfer, it was also the establishment of uh, the land grant college system, state universities. I went to one UMass Amherst that trained these new landowners in farming techniques. But it, it wasn't just that, um, it was also the um, providing of low interest loans or no interest loans to uh, these people who had land for very, very little some of the ways that land was transferred are comically simple and low barrier. You pay five or $15 for the filing fee to get your several acres. 
And if you occupy it for five years, it's yours. And it's yours forever. Heaven to hell was the property law fiction. And you can transfer it down to your descendants. And tens of millions of people who are alive today have land, have property. That way, they inherited it from their parents who inherited from their parents who inherited from their parents. The country I grew up in, Ethiopia, in the 1970s, went through a communist revolution that transferred land from the nobles to the serfs, essentially the farmers. And um, currently, under the legal system of that country, and under the legal system of many other countries throughout the world, you can't really own land forever. You can lease it for 99 years, name of Sam, Sam's uh, podcast. You can um, use the land for certain purposes, but you cannot establish yourself as a perpetual dynasty based on um, passive income from wealth. The United States is different. The United States was essentially established to give poor Europeans a chance at becoming little emperors of their plots of land. And um, that form of socialism that took root in the middle of the 19th century has had lots of successful iterations throughout the last uh, 200, 150 years. One successful iteration is uh, the Medicare system. Another is the Social Security system. But as um, uh, Heather McGee details extremely well in a wonderful book that I recommend to everyone, The Sum of Us, throughout the um, 20th century, white communities that had lots of wonderful amenities, things like public pools and public baths uh, and uh, recreational spaces for the entire community, rather than integrate those uh, amenities, destroyed them when Black people moved into uh, uh, neighborhoods. And since the 80s, since the Reagan revolution, that's what's happened to a lot of public goods. Rather than expand the United States' socialist system outside of white Americans, the Republican Party, and then eventually also the Democratic Party, uh, waged war on public goods, on things like public universities, on um, public assistance, on um, uh, anything that honored the principle to each according to their need. Uh, and so what is necessary to establish a multiracial democracy in the United States, where we have both economic and political democracy, is uh, to reestablish every system on the cornerstone of to each according to their need and from each according to their ability. That's what the United States had for uh, its white majority in the middle and late 20th century. And then when black people became full citizens starting in the 60s after the Voting and Civil Rights Acts, um, the um, United States government um, and then the, and the Republican Party and to some extent the Democrats got on the bandwagon of shrink government, wage war on public goods. Government is bad. Everything that government does ends in corruption. Um, but really government is an unavoidable part of communal existence. And it's the way that we correct historical injustices. And um, that has to happen in Maine. It has to happen everywhere in the United States for a true thriving multiracial democracy to exist. There is a necessary task in Maine in particular of uh, truth telling about 
the warped and uh, disastrous uh, cruelty to indigenous people um, that characterizes Maine legal history and Maine political history. In the 1870s, the state of Maine had a constitutional convention uh, where one of the questions on the ballot was whether to make it illegal to reprint a part of the Maine 1820 Constitution that required Maine to honor treaty obligations that indigenous people had entered into with Massachusetts. The legal force of those sections remained in effect, but since the 1870s, it's actually been illegal to print them so that even the Maine State Archives, which is the official um, custodian of the Maine Constitution, can't legally print the entire Constitution. There was a bill sponsored by surprise, surprise representatives, Madam Speaker Talbot Ross, to um, make it legal to print um, that section of the Maine Constitution. Um, it's not as consequential as the battle for indigenous sovereignty, which will um, happen this legislative session, but it's one dimension of Maine's um, very awful in colonial history um, that uh, continues to um, reduce the life chances of indigenous people. Um, and uh, I urge every person listening to get involved in that. Thank you. And I got to say, my mind is a little bit blown at this particular moment. <laughs> uh, the, the, the idea, the assertion that this country was built on socialism for white people. I've never heard it said in that way. And I gotta say, you bringing up the sum of us, never thought that I would get excited about reading a book about the creation of policy. It was exciting, it was engaging, love it. Uh, just read it recently um, for, I might as well give my own little plug, uh, the Legally Racist uh, reading and discussion workshop series being held by the Alpha Legal Foundation, the founder of whom we interviewed a couple months back, uh, Crystal Williams, amazing human being. Uh, but to your other point, right, about the need for truth-telling speaks to another area that I love um, and that there is such a need for. So thank you for uplifting that. What impact do you think the releasing of these truths can have in helping us make that transition from our racial history to a multiracial democratic future? Thank you, Leo. Um, you know, for some time, I was convinced of this fantasy that if you tell people the truth, if people expose themselves to the truth, then the desire to um, uh, act on the information, the desire to achieve justice, the desire to transform your surroundings will naturally arise in a person if they're healthy when they hear the truth. Um, I'm not entirely convinced of that. Um, I think that it's it was MLK Day earlier this week. Um, one thing that Martin Luther King said later in his life was that a lot of the civil rights advances that he witnessed in his lifetime um, came at a massive discount. Essentially, he quote, he said, we bought them at bargain rates because uh, integration was actually helpful to big business. Um, integrating lunch counters 
means more burgers are sold. Well, the other, the, the transformations that he was asking for, for he was assassinated, uh, the ones that were not just for civil rights, but also economic democracy, um, are not available at bargain rates. They uh, require uh, a loss of wealth on the part of those who've uh, accumulated lots of wealth through generational wealth transfers, both uh, economic and social capital throughout the last two centuries. And it's uh, maybe possible that a class of people throughout human history has voluntarily given up wealth and power. But I don't know of such an example. Um, doesn't mean it can't happen, uh, but I think that's one of the things that we're talking about. Uh, essentially, an elaborate tax and transfer system where ill-gotten wealth, land, privilege uh, is transferred and democratized. Um, the labor movement is part of this. The indigenous land back movement is part of this. And the black reparation movement is part of this. And the only way those things can happen is by transferring land and wealth. Beautiful. Thank you. So <laughs> another jam-packed episode um, of just so much truth that is denied in so many spaces. This is what truth-telling looks like. This is what it feels like. This is what it sounds like. And it sounds, looks, and feels beautiful and powerful. And this is what we need in so many other spaces. So yes, racial disparities persist transfer of land uh, is, is a very generous term, uh, uh, lo lo looking back at the genocide upon which it stood and how all of that land has been transferred down through generations unjustly and unfairly in a way that continues to perpetuate the systems of oppression that exist today throughout our economy and throughout our carceral system, which is tied to every square inch of our nation. So thank you. Samuel James, Michael Cabetta, you both are amazing. You are doing great work. Again, I'll, I'll give a shout out to the 99 Years Podcast. You can find it at 99yearpod.com. And please, Sam, real quick, let our listeners know what they can do to get involved. Uh, well, of course, you can start by listening to my podcast. Um, <laughs> I there's there are um honestly I always feel like just a little bit of googling will do it you know there are people who if you're sitting there right now and you're listening to this and you think oh my goodness I'm alone in this I know all this stuff what can I do with it I can absolutely guarantee you there are organizations in your neighborhood right now who are working to try to change these things um you know Michael works for the ACLU um they they have a long list of of uh, of needs and directions they can point you um the problem is never that there is uh too little to do right um a little bit of googling will do it for you and i say head to the uh, aclu site and they will uh they will point you in some directions but also of course listen to your show more there are especially local leaders who are always telling 
people to show up and always telling you like how to get involved. Uh, I, you know, if you are a local to Portland or if you're lucky enough to live in Michael's neighborhood, I definitely suggest following uh, counselor Tori Pelletier on social media, especially Instagram. She is uh, constantly reminding people of actions that they can take. That's perfect. Thank you. And for our listeners, yes, next week, please join Marion Anderson for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio. With thanks to bluesman Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series, and to Emma Reynolds, our sound engineer. We are Justice Radio. Mm-hmm.